Yeah, Shabazz Palaces. I mean, nothing soft about that, man. I mean, that that group is unreal. I mean, to me, we actually listened to them the other night in the van. Like, to me, I think they are easily probably the most interesting hip-hop group probably of all time. I'm going to just go ahead and say of all time. Easily. This isn't just like hip-hop. I mean, this is art. They're bringing in influences like that goes way back to like Sun Ra with outer space. Afrofuturism. Afrofuturism. Parliament. He's like proof that you can keep doing it and that you can kind of reinvent yourself. First two decades of hip-hop artists, a lot of them just went away or they did the same thing. And he's proof that you can have a later in life career. Yeah, definitely. Definitely. I don't know. It's funny because even the other day I was listening to like Grandmaster Flash and the Furious Five. That group especially, they're not only are they they pioneers of hip-hop, but again, it's like this isn't just like, I mean, there was a lot of hip-hop groups or whatever that came out of the era. But those guys were, those guys were creative geniuses, I think, you know, Grandmaster Flash, super creative. I mean, without Grandmaster Flash, I think like the Furious Five, you wouldn't have had like guys were going to step out and be kind of, but there's also that influence too of like people like Blowfly, for instance, Mm -hmm. who did comedy and even Red Fox. Yeah, there's a whole, there's so much that where the eccentric genius is alive and well. I mean, MF Doom, no longer a group, but The Satisfaction, female hip hop's from seattle i think danny brown's a cool weirdo yeah, like totally yeah yeah, yeah still yeah. some of that floating around yeah yeah yeah. but like anything else when it when a genre really becomes super commercial a yeah lot of that goes like that cool way. keith i mean we're talking these guys are yeah like, there's a guy who reinvented the shit out of himself exactly i mean who took on personas yeah you know dr octagon yeah it wasn't just like a name it wasn't just like i'm yeah. the jizza or the rizza no i'm like i'm this character and that's like unreal. The RZA again is a really good example of somebody who's like just was able to do an incredible breadth of different things. No doubt about it. The I stuff mean, he did with like on like the Tarantino soundtrack. No doubt and, about it. No doubt about it. I mean, those guys. Wu Tang is on a different level as far as like that goes. I mean, you're talking like I mean they're I mean here's a group who's introducing like underground you know cinema to to the to the hip hop stage. They're not singing about whatever the traditional hip hop groups are singing about can you name another musical group in like all of music that had that many successful side projects or solo acts as the wu-tang clan not that i can think of yeah i mean even in rock i can't think of many just the legacy of the individual members of that group well here's the thing here's the thing though too is that like wu-tang was the first group i ever saw Mm. where it's like we're not a group we're a community. Yeah, collective. We're a collective. And that had, before them, before Wu-Tang, I didn't know of anybody who was a collective. It was almost like, here's 20 guys, 20 of my friends, and we're <laughs> all amazing at rhyming. How did you end up being solo? How did that come about? I mean, I assume you were in bands, you were playing around with people. Yeah, in the 19, ni- early 1990s, like 90, 91, I, I started like playing in hardcore groups. Like... And not like, I want to clarify here. I mean, because again, I'm a real stickler here when it comes yeah. to like the term hardcore. Hardcore meaning like DC, New York okay. style. Okay. Like, um, not straight edge. Not not exactly straight edge just yet. I yeah. mean, uh, although I did, although I love straight edge music. Don't yeah. Get me wrong. I mean, Agnostic Front was one of my favorite all time, you know, bands. But like Minor Threat. Minor style. Threat, you know, pe- people like that. A good example of that. A lot of the Discord stuff was amazing. So um, why do you, why do you have to clarify? Because that's what I think of hardcore. I think that's what I think of. Well, I think because, of Minor because Threat. Because there's a whole new generation oh, who are now calling hardcore this thing, which basically is like sludge metal. Yeah. It's not hardcore. To me, it's not hardcore. I just not the hardcore I grew up. Hardcore to me was like very fast 
music. It was under 30 seconds to a minute long. It was very energetic. And, and then, like, somewhere in the mid-90s, like, now all of a sudden we're dropping to tune, tune our guitars to drop C, and it's just like, you know, and we're only using our, our floor tom and our, our toms and a lot of cymbals. I mean, it just sounds, it starts to sound like Celtic Frost. It starts to sound like a little bit like Celtic Frost without the, the yeah. speed or, you know, the solos, guitar solos. Without the technical prowess yeah. of a, uh, it, just, it was metal. metal. There's nothing yeah. hardcore about it. I was in hardcore bands, meaning like fast music. W- were you singing in them? Mm-hmm. I that's sang. A skill in yeah, and yeah. of itself. Yeah, I sang. Did you have the voice for it? Yeah, yeah. In fact, I was even com- I was compared, believe it or not, I was compared vocally to uh, the lead singer of Sick of It All. That's a pretty big jump to where you are now and have been for a few decades. Huge jump. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Take me through that timeline. So, you know, the early 1990s, pre-grunge. I mean, this is pre-Nevermind. Seattle had a very thriving hardcore scene. Huh. A huge hardcore scene, actually. Between the Seattle gr- scene and the east side scene, Bellevue, Redmond, Kirkland scene, which is where actually the Blood Brothers came out of. I don't know if you heard the Blood Brothers or not. Yeah, yeah. yeah. That's where that whole thing came out. Somebody real estate came out of the east side. So we're talking like maybe borderline emo. It's some borderline of this. emo. Like when you're getting into pre Nevermind yeah. is when emo started making its way into okay. hardcore music. So at that point, I wasn't into it, and I was just like, okay, this is not for me. And and honestly, I was like, okay, I'm 17. I'm gonna be 18. I'm an adult now. I don't really relate to a lot of these lyrics at all. I liked the simplicity of the lyrics and the chords and the energy of it. But it's music for youth for the most part. Music, Hardcore music, I always thought, like, it's not for me today. It's but you for, were 19 at the time. It was still very much for 17, you. 17, 16, 17 years yeah. old. By the time I turned 18, 19, I just didn't relate to it anymore. And again, at that point, by the time Nevermind came out, Nevermind, like really just obliterated everything in every way, shape, or form. Even as a hardcore musician. Because now it's like, punk is now mainstream. And although you're trying to gather as much as you can from the ashes of this bomb that just went off on the nation called grunge, it was little left. I find that when I look back at my life, there's maybe a handful of those moments that really felt like I was at a crossroads, you know, that really felt like something came along or or there was a decision or a moment that like just profoundly impacted the direction of my life. Do you you feel like that moment, I mean, was in the way that it was for the larger music industry was never mind kind of a, a come to god moment for you no because it, it was it was actually not never mind it was mm. a record i heard by billy bragg and this is where the line of folk and punk the bridge and, yeah. the, and there's a left side of that bridge or right side of the bridge, whatever you on either end of the spectrum you have you have punk over here and folk over here now i knew immediately i mean i i remember hearing a pete Seeger record for the first time yeah. i bought it at the thrift store i remember hearing songs like which side are you on B- billy bragg always felt more woody guthrie than joe strummer to me Exactly. But here's the album that yeah. changed my my entire life. Because I was looking for something that wasn't hokey, like coffeehouse folk music, yeah. which is happening. There wasn't much for the younger generation. And then I heard a record by Billy Bragg. This record was called Back to Basics. I don't even know if it's available anymore. I don't know. But I, and anyways, they had these great songs on there. And I was just like, and it's just him and an electric guitar. That's it. There's no drums. There's no bass. It was punk, but it was like really, really good songwriting. The Clash, you can you hear that in The Clash, obviously. Sure. Brilliant songwriters. I think even more so than we give them credit, honestly, The Clash. But Billy Bragg was a 
that was just like, that was my come to God moment. It was just like, whoa, you can still kind of have this punk ethos and DIY ethos, but not subscribe to the whole anti this, anti that, blah, 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 blah. I hate the government. I hate the people. I hate the world, whatever. And still give a shit in a, in a kinder way. One of the key differences there between, you know, again, a Billy Bragg and the, and the Clash is when you're standing out there and it's just you and your guitar, everything that's bad, everything people hate is completely on you. There's no buffer between you. You know, there's no, yeah. there's no other members of the band to fall back on. There's no, no production no. with Nirvana. There's no, you know, bed of distortion. It's no. just you. And people can clearly hear your lyrics, and if they suck, they'll know it. Yeah. I remember going to see Billy Bragg for the first time, and it was just him and electric guitar. Again, I'd never seen anything like this. I mean, and I'd seen solo performers on, like, farmer's markets. I never went to a show in my life where I saw a guy with a guitar and no other members, like you said, on stage. There's nothing to hide behind. It's just him, and he was very conversational. He talked a lot to the audience and it was very engaging whether you agree to this politics or not you couldn't take your eyes off of him yeah. it was so engaging and so vulnerable and real there was no distortion there was like nothing just there's no walls there's no curtain it's just him and I, that really had a profound effect on my life huge it's a tough path to take especially coming from uh, your musical background up to that point again when you look at most people who are out there with the guitar and are being earnest it's really easy to fall in those cliches it's really easy to be hulky it's it's easy to be those as you said you know farmers market folk singers how long did it take for you to get the confidence to actually get out there and get in front of someone with your guitar that wouldn't happen until so again so i heard back to basics for the first time in 17 i wouldn't play my own my own first solo show until i was 22 what's happening in the meantime in the meantime what's happening is that um i was still playing in bands i was still writing material but i wasn't very serious about it the thing about the thing you're not hearing yet which i haven't got into you yet with, with you yet is that my love for music wasn't in, was intense but my love for visual art was okay. greater it was it was my life's passion i wanted to be a visual artist I wanted to go to art school. I wanted to be a painter. If you would have asked me at 17 what my dream was, my dream was to, was to live in a loft somewhere in New York City or in this side of the world, in Brooklyn. It's still New York City. Yeah, still New York City. In a loft and just painting all day with music playing loud as it could be. And a view of the city just painting and hanging my art in galleries. The first part of that sounds attainable. I don't know if it does today, though. Sure, but... When you were back then, 1890. for sure, yeah, yeah. But what happened was that, like, I was, a, I was education-wise, wasn't going to happen for mm. me. I was a special ed kid. I thought it was damn good, actually, at visual art. I thought it was yeah. really good, like really good. I was a lot better than visual art than I was in my music. What happened was that 94, I moved into a tiny apartment, tinier than this room. I mean, it was little. Still in Seattle. Still in Seattle at this time. There was no room for me to paint because I paint big. I was yeah. painting big Campuses, pictures. Yeah, yeah big pictures. I got bored, and a friend said to me, "You should try playing guitar." I mean, you write you write songs like I was like, oh, I don't know, man, like just to pass the time. I mean, you were already playing guitar up to this point. Yeah, but I wasn't playing like what you think I'm playing. I'm I'm playing like power chords. I'm not playing like chords. Yeah, G D and C. He said you should take this seriously. No, not even that. He just said you should take a guitar and just like do something fun. So I turned that into an art project. It was like a a kid's practice guitar. You're holding it up. It almost looks like a large ukulele. <laughs> it's like it was the size of a large ukulele, yeah. actually. And it was uh, six string, barely stayed in tune. And I ended up writing between the two cassettes I did uh, forty songs. And I wrote them, and I and I wrote them in a period of like two months. 
and then released two cassettes back to back. And I gave started giving them to friends because I, I made Z, I made like these Xerox covers and all that. It was fun. It's fun to do. I became really experimental with the way that things were sounding. Also, during this time, I want to want to want to I want to also want to put this in here too. During this time, I had also first heard my first Lou Barlow record, the Centrido record, and also the first Mountain Goats. I had these on cassette. Oh, and also uh, One Foot in the Grave, Beck's One Foot mm-hmm. in the Grave. In the case of the early Mountain Goats, especially, I mean, that's him literally recording to a cassette tape deck. Right. And that's what I did. So I took like, I took this little boombox, no external microphones, just push, play, and record. And that was it. And I did 40 songs. And um, not really serious at this point. No, it was all, it was all art. It was all art. I mean, I mean, I mean, I'm, I'm making like, I'm creating sound effects and going out, I'm recording songs outside. We can hear the birds and I mean, it's cars driving by. I mean, I'm getting a very experimental here. Found sound. Found sound, incorporating that into it. So it was art. That was it. Around this time that like good friend of mine, Jeremy Enoch of Sunny Real Real Estate fame, he says I'm doing the solo show. I would love to have you open. And I said, "Oh my god, I'm not doing. I'm not doing that." He said, "No, it'll be fun. It's just, it's like not like a show. It's like a party, like a get together." I'm like, okay. Was it nerves? No, I just didn't want to. I just didn't. I think. I think. Just I just no desire to. I was yeah. like, I don't. It's not. It's, this isn't a serious thing. Like, you're yeah. gonna hate this anyways. Who cares? So it was a party, sort of a private show that sub popped through mm-hmm. because they were interested in signing signing this group out of Massachusetts called the Scud Mountain Boys. They hadn't been signed yet. So it was me, Jeremy Enoch. Scud Mountain Boys. So your first show performing as a solo artist was at a sub pop. Was it a sub pop like private show yeah. party? It's a pretty good start. Pretty good. Forgot who. Didn't yeah. Take it too seriously. No, didn't give a shit. Yeah. So I, I played five songs and immediately as I'm walking off stage, I was appro- approached by John Poneman. John Poneman is the president of Sub Pop Records. And he goes, hi, I'm John Poneman. Nice to meet you. I'm good friends with you. Know, whatever. I know Jeremy. Okay. Do you, ha- do you have any demos? And I said... And I'm thinking to myself, I'm not going to give him these cassettes. I said, I have something that I could probably put together for you if you're interested. But if, I mean, keep in mind, I'm th- I mean, I'm very flattered at this point. Yeah, I'm not thinking like anything's going to happen with this. Yeah. I, I thought it was just his way of saying like, good show. Doug, what you did. Did you think this was a normal thing that you would play a house party, get off stage, and the president of Sub Pop would approach you? No, no, no. But, but again, but again, I honestly, I didn't care. Yeah. I mean, it wasn't my world. It'd be like if you'd be like if you were invited to a chef's house, sure, and you brought an hors d'oeuvre, and the chef liked it. Now all of a sudden, you're two years later, you are known around the world as being one of the greatest hors d'oeuvre chefs there are. You just do all you all you were doing was showing yeah. up with some hors d'oeuvres. You didn't know it was going to happen next. Do you feel that the fact that you weren't taking it super seriously, that there might have been some benefit to that? If there was, I didn't know what it was. I try to put myself in a position where tomorrow I go on stage and I know four chords on a guitar. Try to make myself perform on stage in front of a group of people. And I would be, I would be terrified. I would be overthinking everything. You know, I'd be running over my lyrics a million times and throwing things in the trash. But if it's a low-pressure situation then you don't have any of those concerns. Keep in mind, I had, I had zero expectation. And I will say that even today, I have zero expectation. Like, I have a, I'm often asked, like, does it ever bother you that you're not as popular yeah. as fill in the blank? And I always say, no, I'm not bothered by it. Look, I'm like, I, I do what I, I love what I do. I feel like I'm good at what I do. I feel like I'm just as good as anybody else. But I would never, ever in a million years want to be playing sold out shows at like Radio City Music Hall. I just don't. That's the God's honest truth. And here's why I don't. 
because you lose the connection with your audience. Yes. You're not able to you're not able to walk out. I mean maybe you are, I don't know. You're not able to walk out into the lobby or right off stage and shake the hands of people who came to your show. Now you could, I would do that. I would love that. But there's also there's there's also this lack of connection that you're getting. It's like how many how many shows have you gone to? Let's say like the Beacon Theater, which is a beautiful place. I was fortunate enough to play there with Jason Isabel a couple years ago. Beautiful place. But even that. I walked in that venue and I was like, damn, this is incredible. It's huge. I remember being on stage that night, not even being able to see past the second row of people. And all of them were sitting down and looking, checking their phones. They weren't even engaged. What's a good night for you? What's good engagement for you at a show? Hearing the audible sigh. Hearing the audible groan. This sound like negative reactions. No. The, I feel it. Like the, man, that's heavy. Or like, I can relate, I relate to that. I hear it all the time. And you lose that when you become like a show. My shows are not like that. I'm not an, I always say this, I'm not an entertainer. If you're coming to be entertained, you may be entertained by maybe some of the things I say, which may be kind of funny or not funny. Maybe off, I don't know. But that's really it. I'm not an entertainer. I am an artist. I'm someone who just goes up on stage and is expressing himself. I always say this, I'm a healer is what I am. I'm in the game of healing. I'm in the game of vulnerability. I'm in the game of saying like, this is what I'm going through. Do you relate to this? If so, how do you relate to this? Like, tell me what's, what's going on with you, man. What's going on? Like, let's have, a, let's have this interaction and talk. Now, granted, there's nothing wrong with the entertainment world. God bless it. I love, I love the shit out of it on all levels. But when it comes down to it, I'm not an entertainer. It's not what I do. It must take a while to get to that vulnerability. I mean, I assume those earliest cassettes you were recording weren't you bare naked for the world. No, no, it was just me just being me. And I, and I think that you were asking about, you were asking a couple minutes ago, about like, what does that do now that you're signed? Well, here's what it does to me. Is that now I'm thinking to myself, oh, now I'm going to be an entertainer. So I spent more than half of my career trying to figure out how to be an entertainer. And it wasn't until I got to 2010, the release of St. Bartlett. And that's when it all changed for me. It was like, oh no, I can just be a little weird. I can just, I can incorporate these things back into my music. Now, Ghost of David is a, honestly is a good example of this. Is that's a bit of a departure from everything else. Ghost of David is a record that's, it's a, I always say that it's its own island record. It's an island record because it stands out. It's the black sheep of my discography because that was a record where I was like really just being me. That is me at my rawest form. Uh, even subject-wise, the stuff I'm singing about, the way it's recorded. I had no idea. I've recorded that myself. I had no idea what the hell I was doing. So what happens in 2010 that makes you realize that you can and should do this? I had no choice. Mental illness, which is something that I have struggled with my entire life, it got so much of me that I wasn't able to hide anymore behind showmanship wasn't able to hide behind. And this does happen every once in a while. Like I did a record called Down in Your Shadow and I did that record on that tour. Now I've been clean and sober for a long time, but in 2006, I fell off the wagon. Very hardcore. Marital crisis like you wouldn't believe. Everything hits at once. Everything hits at once. Quit the tour, went home, went immediately into marriage counseling. Immediately trying to get sober. Did it feel like you might be done with music? Uh, yeah. Immediately. I was like, oh yeah, I was like, this is, this is, I'm not doing this anymore. I'm going to get a day job. And I did. I worked, I worked at a preschool. I became a preschool teacher. 
Is is it that there's just too much temptation on the road? No, it's it's that it's that it's it's that um it's unnatural. The life is unnatural, and there's lots of people who can do this. Like I don't, I don't, I personally like, you know, no more. I tried. Now this tour was this tour was nearly reaching three weeks. Yeah, that's long for me. So how do you address mental illness in your songwriting? Well, I sing about it. I mean, I just write about it. In a literal sense? The literal sense. Yeah, yeah, the literal sense. Can you point to a lyric that you feel like really properly describes where you were at the time with regards to that struggle? On St. Bartlett, there's a song called Cloudy Shoes. There's also a song called Beacon Hill. Beacon Hill is a an area of Seattle in the downtown area where the hospital I was going to was uh, called Harborview. I have another song on that album called Harborview. That entire St. Bartlett is about mental illness, about my struggles with mental illness, and about a friend of mine who I, who I was very close with who also was going through the exact same thing. Do you feel that your work is better when it's more direct? Yes. Yeah. But I, it's funny, it's funny, you know, because like, uh, you know, I did, the, I did the Maricopa trilogy, and even that was about someone who sort of tries to escape and kind of go in his mind. But, you know, I mean, yeah, I mean, I mean, I've been I've been dealing with it for a long, long time. It's a part of me. So but I think on this newer record, it really comes to the forefront. This is the most like blatantly confessional me record you're ever going to get. You ditched the producer. You are the producer. I'm on the this producer one. on this album. Yeah. Was that just an attempt to be more direct no, or personal? No, no. That happened actually by by uh, just by circumstances. Yeah. Um, Richard Swift. He worked with for a long time. Long time. He got busy and wasn't able to do the record. And that was, for me, it was time to make a record. He wasn't available to do it. So when it's like, time, it's time. It's time, it's time. So I called studio in California, see called Sonicwire. And I go, do you guys have availability? Yeah, sure, come on down. Okay, cool. I'll be, I'll be down in a few days. Two days later, I literally, two days later. You went into labor and yeah, you had to yeah. push this baby out. Yeah, that's pretty much how it felt. Yeah, yeah. And, and I could tell you, 2016 and 2017 were really rough years it's been a lot of rough years 2018 really started off rough but i'm now a few months into the to the uh, green pasture it's very peaceful and you touched on the trilogy at what point do dreams start making a direct appearance on your work maricopa is when it happened for me it was just the act of waking up from a particularly vivid dream yeah that was it. Again, I can probably count on two hands the really vivid dreams, like really cinematic dreams. Really, every couple of years, I'll have a dream that felt like I had watched an entire movie, you know, yeah, that, yeah. that however long it takes to dream that, you know, two hours or something had had passed. In interviews that I've read that you'd done around the trilogy, it sounds like you feeling like you needed to save it for posterity to get it down. I mean, you know, that's the one of the big problems with dreams. You wake up and... 10 minutes later they're gone well and again i always said it, it for me it wasn't like a movie it was more like a trailer it put hmm. out like a trailer but in that trailer there was a lot of stuff that's going on visually and i dream in color by the way so it was very vivid and very real to me but here's what i didn't know i didn't know and this is where it's because this is where this maybe maybe this interview turns a little weird here but but bear with me here so and i'm, I'm gonna tell you where i'm gonna tell you how how this connects to this new album connects to maricopa the protagonist in maricopa I didn't realize this until recently. Is me. Hmm. I am this. I am the protagonist of Maricopa. How can you write three albums about someone and not realize that it's you? Because I'm not. I'm a writer who does not pay attention a lot to what he's writing down. Hmm. 
is if it, is I do channeling, it I almost? do. Yeah. Yeah. You have to be remain open. Yeah. I have to move out of the way and allow that to flow through me. Yeah. I, it's you're a vessel. You're a medium. I'm a medium. Yeah. I'm a medium for the dream or whatever's going on or the story. What's the process of opening yourself up to it? This is a conversation I have with a lot of, particularly musicians, it seems like more than any other artist, is the struggle to, to force yourself to write. You know, a lot of people have to give themselves deadlines or make sure that they're writing a certain number of hours during the day. Yeah. And, and with a lot of people across all different sorts of artistic mediums, I've talked to a lot of people who have this sense of jealousy of those people who are, do seem like they're channeling it or do seem like it's effortless. And you hear these stories about the famous one is you know, obviously the, uh, the Keith Richards one with Satisfaction where he sort of wakes up and has the riff for this song. Mm. Uh, how do you get yourself to a place where you feel like you can really just be a vessel for whatever story is trying to be told? You move out of the way. In real world terms, what does that mean? It means you don't think about it. It means you don't think about what you're doing. You, you literally, you are literally letting go of the wheel. The car starts driving itself now, meaning the words will come out and you don't second guess it. You write it down. Whatever words come to your brain, you write those down. You don't think about it. You don't dwell on it. You write them down. That's it. You have notebooks. There's no notes. This might've been the same interview I, I read and you said, every time I say this, I know it's going to make other songwriters angry that, that it sounded like the process on, for the most part, the process of songwriting is fairly effortless for you. It is. And again, this is where I'm a medium. I'll give an example of this. Like the music I play, the kind of music I write, I don't listen to. I don't sit around and jam on my guitar. I don't, I don't do that. When I'm at home, I'm doing a million other things. I'm painting, hanging out with the kids. I'm spending a lot of time with my girlfriend. I'm doing things I like doing. And when the, when the song shows up, you got to be open. You got to be open to it. You know, it's like, it's literally like, hey, um, I know we're in the middle of something right here. I'm going to, well, let's say we're having dinner, dinner party for Jim, who's retiring. I turn to my girlfriend and I say, hey, um, I'll be right back. Does she know? She usually knows. You either have to go to the bathroom really bad or there's a song coming out. Yeah, yeah, yeah. And or I'll say, I'll just be honest yeah. with her. I'll be like, hey, I have an idea. I'll be right back. What does an idea look like? Is it just, is it a phrase? It's a, it's a line, it's a tune, it's a, it's a melody and a line. Yeah. Yeah. It's no different. It's no different if you were a doctor and your beeper went off. You got you to gotta respond to your beeper. That's how it is. Did somebody at the, the dinner party say something that triggered that thought? No, no. It comes from an outside thing. That sounds wonderful. And again, it sounds like the kind of thing that would probably honestly make a lot of creative people jealous. But is there a concern that one day it just won't be there? No, no, no. I'm chosen. You, you haven't had um, dry spells? No. Not once. And this is from from that early, those early days of you sitting down with the guitar, it's been pretty constant since then? It, yeah, but, he, but it goes even back further than that. Hmm. It goes back to walking home from school in elementary school, getting a song in my head or a tune in my head yeah. or whatever, something super simple, you know, and I'd have it in my head over and over and over and over again. And that's what I would do. I'm the, I, I've had it my whole life. It's just that it wasn't until I was much older that I started like, writing things down and pressing play and record that was all i've had this my whole life you mentioned when it came to going to art school that you know because you were in special ed at the time that was a, a bit of a barrier of entry were people early in your life encouraging of these creative flourishes that you were having visually yeah nobody knew about this song stuff you just didn't talk about it no because it wasn't important to me so yeah. he was just he was just like oh that's cool it's a note in my head it's a, a vision in my head i got a lot of visions you know stories scenarios play in my head all the time 
to me, it was just like, ah, whatever. It's just like breathing. I'm not focused on my breathing all the time. Breathing isn't an art form. <laughs> you know what I mean? So I, I, for me, it just seemed so natural. Like, why would I? I don't know. I, didn't, I just didn't think about it. For me, it's songwriting, coming up with songwriting and, and words, it just didn't make sense. It didn't make sense because I... You didn't have an outlet. I didn't have... Well, A, I didn't have an outlet. And B, I was... I was grammatically, educationally challenged. I had to, I still do have severe dyslexia. So I don't read. I, don't, I still don't read fiction. I've never read a piece of fiction in my life. Never. Not once. But yet this is my career. My career is essentially writing fiction. And you really doubled down on it with that trilogy. I mean, you were, yeah, yeah. You were taking these initial sparks and really building up an entire city out of it. I'll tell you, though, that comes easy. That comes easy for me. My upbringing was both dysfunctional and nomadic. And when you have those two things as your center, that's what your life is. That's all you're doing is escaping. You're entertaining yourself. I'm entertaining myself. You know, I couldn't, I couldn't afford to go to the movies. We never saw movies when we were a kid. We didn't have cable television when I was a kid. You know, um, we had television, you know, like, you know, family ties and the whole nine yards, but happy days, you know. But, you know, we didn't have, we didn't go to movies. We didn't have a VCR. My only escape was pretty much like the radio and my own head. That's really it. Did the painting ever go away? Yeah. The painting took it to a back seat from 1994 till about 2006. It's a long time to not be doing the thing you felt like you yeah. were put on this earth to do. Yeah. But then I, and then I put it away again from 2007 to 2000. 12 i put it away and then 2012 i picked it up again seriously does it still feel like a pure representation of you and what you're trying to do than songwriting even though you've been doing songwriting for as long as you have no 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 it's a completely different thing i mean the art thing the visual art thing is so different than what i do musically it's very different if you looked at my artwork you'd be like oh yeah this sounds nothing like your music at all this looks nothing like your music it's two different worlds. The pictures that you're getting in your head and the, the, the words and phrases are not coming from the same place? No. Yeah. The, the visual art and the songwriting, they're coming from two different areas. They're two different worlds completely. So no, they're not coming from the same place. When painting takes a backseat or goes away altogether, are you able to kind of turn that part of your brain off for a while? No, no, no. No, it, it is, it, it's not turned. It's never turned off. Yeah. It's always on. It's just a matter of like leaving the faucet on to run. You're just not going to turn it off. You're, just, you're aware of, it's, you're aware of yeah. it's on. You're just not really feeding into it of both of these main creative pursuits and all of everything that's contained therein what is the most purely pleasurable part of the creative process for you producing the album it's always making the album i'm into making albums which is interesting because you you know when we were talking before about your career i know we were talking about the life setting but you said that the thing that was most important to you was getting this uh, interpersonal connection with other yeah, people, yeah. but you don't really get that in the same way with an album. At least it takes a long time to well, get there. Some fans would say, yeah, you do. But do you get that feedback from them in the same way? Because of the internet, I do, yeah. My Facebook page, for instance, people can, anybody can email me. It's not run by anybody but me. So when fans email me, and I get so many stories about how the songs mm. have affected my, the songs really affected my life I'm currently you know uh, or I'm, I'm from Florida I am in a situation where my wife has cancer she's not going to live long or hey my dad is in hospice right now this is, these, these songs are just helping me get through this so I am able to connect with them through an album sure it's very different it's, yeah of course it's different than like 
hey, how's it going? Like touching my hand. Is that sense of connection more intense as your stuff has become more and more personal over the years? Yes. Sounds like this is your most personal to date. Yes. Sounds like you feel like you just keep getting better. I will say yes. You're modest. I will say yes. And and, I, and I'm saying that with no ego. I'm yeah. saying that as someone who really is stepping into a season of learning to love myself and is now finally starting to recognize that I'm actually good at this. This is all new. Took a couple of decades to get there. Uh, yeah, it took a long time to get here around where I'm at right now. But this is me at my healthiest. If I say to you, yes, I'm good at this, or I know I have the power, there's something powerful about this, and this is my this is my best work yet. That's actually a healthy thing for me to say that. I would have not. I would have never said that a year ago. I don't think I've ever said that six months ago. So yeah, I'm very proud of this work. I, I do. I think it's. I think it's my masterpiece. There you go. That was Damian Gerardo. Thanks so much to him for taking the time to do that. His latest record is fantastic. It's called The Horizon Just Laughed. It is out now. Highly recommend you pick that up along with the rest of his stuff. He's just one of the best singers songwriters going right now. Thanks to him. Thanks to Amanda at Chromatic for helping set up that conversation. Thanks to you guys as always for listening to the program. If you like the show, there are a number of ways to support us. You can rate and review us on iTunes or Google Podcasts or wherever you happen to get your podcasts. Like us on Facebook. If you've got any feedback, it's rylcast at gmail.com follow us on tumblr that's rylcast.tumblr.com that's the first and best place to get all of your riyl related information we have a lot of fantastic shows coming up as we creep toward episode 300 so stick around because we will be back just about this time next week with another episode of riyl